Hi, I'm Siggy, born and raised in St. Catharines, Ontario, and now living in the nation's capital of Ottawa. And I'm Jesse, born in Manila, Philippines, raised in Toronto, Canada, and schooled all over southwestern Ontario. You're listening to the Halo Halo podcast, a delicious mix of pop culture and the Filipino-Canadian life. Before we start our podcast, we'd like to acknowledge the lands we're podcasting on. I'm podcasting from the traditional lands of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. And I'm podcasting from the traditional unceded territory of the Algonquin and Anishinaabeg people. It is June, which is Filipino-Canadian Heritage Month. And on this episode, we turn the spotlight on us as we talk about becoming Filipino-Canadian. But before we get into that topic, Sigs, what have you been up to pop culture-wise? I just have a pop culture comment. Mm-hmm. And I just want your thoughts. We're recording this. It's May 30th, and right. this episode will be dropping June 3rd, this Friday. Right. Now, we all know a very big movie dropped, and it isn't Marvel. It's Top Gun, which dropped on May 27th. Yes, yes. Did you- I was excited. Now, listen, here's the thing. Where the hell is Manny Jacinto? Oh. Vulture did an article on this, and I saw this, and I'm like... I know Glenn Powell is in the cast, Jennifer mm-hmm. Connelly, John Hamm, Tom Cruise, obviously. And I'm like, where's John? Where, where's Manny Jacinto? Like, he was, I know he was built to be in this movie. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, Filipino Canadian yes. in this blockbuster flick. I think his role was minimized. So if there is an actual Vulture article saying, where did he go? And he was sort of regulated to the background. He's in parts of the movie, but he's not yeah. one of the full main characters. Wow. And I'm, I'm sad. That makes me sad. I haven't haven't seen it. It was funny because, you know, it was opening weekend. And of Mm -hmm. course, while everyone is panicked trying to get tickets to essentially a bunch of sold out shows in the VIP here in Toronto, Michael and I were off to see Downton Abbey, a new era. So we were totally counterpoint. But I'll talk about that in my pop culture catch up in just a second. But tell me, I'm really sad to hear that Manny Jacinto wasn't anywhere to be found or was relegated to the back. I was under the impression that he was like, not a major, major character, but a sizable character, was he not? Yeah, he was. Because I remember us talking about it previously where, oh, he's going to be in there. And like, I think he even had a name. But like, I think because it was a large cast, he sort of minimized it. Like, no shade. I think Glenn Powell is the series breakout. Like, right. everyone's talking about Gun Powell and a little bit about Miles Teller being the progeny of Meg Ryan and Anthony, whatever his name is, Goose. Goose, Goose's yes. child. But, like, it was so fun. I was a little disappointed. I'm like, oh, I thought he was part of this. And I was like, oh, I guess I don't really want to see it. I'll probably be, like, one of the only people that doesn't see it because everyone said it was amazing. Everyone thought it was great. Blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. But I do have to tell you something really funny. You were yes. not the only person that saw Danton Abbey. My friend Ray went in the storm <laughs> to see it. And she went and see. So let's segue over to you. Downton Abbey, how was it? Oh, I certainly loved it. And it was interesting. Huh. It was a very different cinematic movie. While the first Downton Abbey movie took an interweaving storyline all around the visit of the King and Queen of England to Downton Abbey, mm-hmm. this one told two stories, eventually colliding into one major finale. And I won't actually reveal what happened, but I can tell you that 
Michael felt really mixed at the end, but I felt like it was a very appropriate, appropriate ending. The question <laughs> that kind of comes about is, is what are they going to do next if they decide to do a third movie? And I guess it depends on how it does at the box office. I will tell you that wasn't crowded at the nine o'clock show, but I'll tell you the 515 show that Michael and I were trying to get into was actually sold out. And we were no, like, no, who went? I know. Seniors? So it was like, well, seniors? it's like, it's, it's seniors <laughs> over 50, right? And I'm yeah. just like, oh my gosh, this is my life. My life is, is that <laughs> no more seven o'clock show, no more nine o'clock show. It's like, can I get, can I go to the five o'clock or the four o'clock matinee, please? So that I can have my cocktail, you know, in the lounge and stuff like that. Oh, Sigs, I'm getting older if I'm wanting to actually see movies. <laughs> In the afternoon. In the afternoon. So I saw Downton Abbey at 9.15, which was fine. Like, it felt really civilized. I had my cocktail. <laughs> I had my chicken fingers. Look but you, it, was, yep. it was very fun to see. It was very fun to see. And they've now catapulted the series into the 1930s. And so lots happened. And it was just interesting to see, you know, all the characters come back. But they've decidedly closed off you know, at least two characters in terms of their storylines. And it's like, hmm, I wonder what will happen next. So that's Downton Abbey, A New Era. Very much enjoyed it. Been looking forward to it. I think I'd been saying this on the podcast that Michael and I had been reviewing the series a couple of times just to make sure that we kept up with what was kind of going on and all the nuances and stuff like that. But the other thing that I've been up to pop culture-wise is RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars 7, which is basically the all-winners all-star season. So past winners ah. of the franchise have kind of come together. And let me tell you, Sigs, the last couple of drag races were just like, oh, whatever. You know, maybe I'm just getting too old for this or maybe I'm getting nostalgic. <laughs> yeah. This season is proving to be fierce because it's oh, no way. past crown winners coming back to compete to become the queen of all queens. And instead, RuPaul saying, bring back my girls, it's like, bring back my legends. And they've got like a really interesting double twist of events. So like? there are no eliminations that are going on in all of this. So, instead, what happens yeah. is that the top two get what's called a legendary star badge, very similar to RuPaul's Drag Race UK. Okay. And lip sync for their legacy and they get a cash tip. But then oh. they have the right, the person who wins the lip sync also has the right to actually block someone for the following week from getting a star. And ah. the top four drag queens that have the most stars end up lip syncing in a Lollapalooza of sorts. <laughs> and so it just feels different, you know, now that people know that they're not going to be eliminated. So people are, you can tell that they're having fun and taking it in jest, but also competing fiercely. So it's really fun to see. So they've got some fan favorites for sure. Like Is from Jinx, Jinx Monsoon? Jinx Monsoon's totally in it. I think she's great. She's totally great. They have Shea Kool-Aid that's also on it. They have Jada Essence Hall season 12. Oh, Jada you, Essence Hall, yeah. Right, that's also on it. You know, so they've got like quite a number of people. Trinity the Tuck is on it as well. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful cast. And I just really like the twist, you know, because I think it just has a different feel. They just recently released a double-ended version of the Snatch game and they actually not played one, but two 
two versions of the Snatch Game. Oh, wow. That's a treat. And Jinx did a fantastic job of actually impersonating Judy Garland. Oh, my God. It was a master class in how to do Snatch Game, actually. Oh, my God. No wonder. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I, I think more good things are to come with respect to RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars Season 7. So Nice. From those legends to our own, right? Like being legends of ourselves in this, in terms of this podcast, at least in our <laughs> li- like little mini universe of sorts. Today's spotlight is on becoming Filipino Canadian, and you know, just previously you were doing a warm up with us on what it means to be Filipino Canadian, which will drop after this particular main episode. Right. But what I really wanted to kind of get to is that. Filipino-Canadian means really acknowledging that we are essentially Filipinos in the diaspora, meaning Mm -hmm. we are Filipinos outside of the Philippines. And I don't know if you've ever thought of yourself that way. Have you ever thought of yourself that way? Like, I'm Filipino outside of the Philippines? Or did you just think of yourself as like a Filipino who emigrated to Canada? How did you think about yourself? Well, see, well, I mean, I was born in Canada, Mm -hmm. but I understood that part of our, this is sort of cheesy, our heart is in the Philippines. I understood mom and dad came from the Philippines. We are Filipino. And I remember, you know what, that simple question where you said, do you understand that you're Philippines outside of the Philippines? It's probably a question I asked my parents when I was like about four or five saying, Mm. but we're from there. And I'm sure my mom like would show me a map. I'm like, but we're Filipino and we live here in Canada. My mom's like, yeah, but you're Canadian too because you were born here. And mom and dad were Filipino, so that's still part of you. And I can see a young Siggy, four years old, (laughs) thinking this through and your brain exploding. And I would say that same with me. My brain would be exploding as well. But the interesting part is we still think about this to this day. Exactly. What our identity is all about. Absolutely. where we're located and how we're positioned. You know, which is decidedly different from being a Filipino in the Philippines. And so (laughs) being a Filipino in Canada is very different from being a Filipino in America or in the United States. And the same thing in terms of being Filipino in southwestern Ontario is very different from being a Filipino from the Vancouver area as well. And how that gets expressed is really different because of location, upbringing, and stuff like that. So being Filipino-Canadian means really acknowledging not only being outside of the Philippines, but where in the world are you located. Right. The other thing to kind of think about in terms of what it means to be Filipino-Canadian is, is that we also have to think about the types of Filipinos in the diaspora, you know, mm-hmm. which really in some ways replicate historical class struggles back in the Philippines. And, yeah. and I don't know if it's evident, but usually it's typically divided around two lines. One are OFW, so overseas foreign workers, and Balakbayans. So people that have actually given up their citizenship or haven't really claimed their citizenship and live in their host country, as opposed to overseas foreign workers where they haven't necessarily given up their citizenship sure. yeah. and they might not even be on a path to citizenship in the host country that's indeed hosting them. It's fascinating because I know that when I go back, quote unquote, home, back to the Philippines, right, and we've had this many conversations many times, it's interesting to see like a separate OFW line. And it's interesting to see how Mm -hmm. I would not necessarily qualify for that line. And yet it means something if you're in the OFW line versus the Balakbayan line. And what does that mean, right? Like, does Balak Bayan mean that you have money? Does that mean that you have wealth? You know, are you able to share that wealth back in the Philippines? So forth and so on. And so our identities get 
divided that way. I don't know if you have any thoughts to and that. The way that you just simply said it is like what one of my friends, Jose, had said too. You know, he was working and he was on a passport. They're like, oh, are you supposed to be in this line or that line? And that's exactly what you said. And but are you sure? It was just, they didn't even look at his passport as it being Canadian. They're like, are you sure you're in the right line? Right. By just looking right. at what he looks like. Well, and, and you so know, go ahead. Yeah. It really is interesting. I remember going back to Canada and I was going obviously through like a, a semi-customs line back at the Manila airport. Mm-hmm. And as I was kind of going through on my passport, it's Canadian. Mm-hmm. On the inside, it says I was born in Manila, Philippines. Right. right. The person that was checking me through, she was like, you're Canadian, yes, but you're really Filipino. And I said, well, but my passport's Canadian, but she kept pointing to like birthplace <laughs> thing, but you're really Filipino. And I, and I was like, is this a trick question? Am I supposed <laughs> to say yes? Right? Like, mm-hmm. I guess I am Filipino, right? But it was just fascinating, right? Because she was clearly acknowledging that you are a Balakbayan going mm-hmm. back to Canada, but you don't forget who you are, right? And so I'm just like, interesting so that subtle. my identity <laughs> is being determined by a customs officer in the Philippines as yeah. to who I really am. And I just think, wow, like from lineups to where you're located in the world, all determines who you are and your expression of your identity of being, in our case, Filipino-Canadian. Now, I also think, too, that associated with being Filipino-Canadian or any other diasporic Filipino identity, what's also associated is kind of the negative stereotypes held by the host country, so depending where you're at in the world. So if we're in the United Arab Emirate or if we're somewhere in Singapore or in the United States or Canada or France depending on that host country and what they think of Filipinos, that gets automatically attached to us. And I think the famous story that I tell, one of the famous stories that I tell, I think I've said on this podcast is how, you know, my parents now live in a well-to-do part of Toronto in Scarborough. Yes, Scarbarians, there are well-to-do parts of Scarborough (laughs) that exist. (laughs) It's not just the, the hood, if you will. But the part of Scarborough that my parents live in, it's mostly white folk. And one day my dad just decided to take the TTC somewhere, right? And then take it back. And as he disembarked from the public transit, the TTC, as he got off and was was walking back to his house, he ran into a domestic worker, a Filipina domestic worker. Mm -hmm. And she asked him, oh, you know, Tito, what, what house do you work for? Yeah, and my dad just smiled and said, "I and pointed to the house, obviously our family home, and says I'm at that house." Yeah, <laughs> it's just interesting. Even that stereotype kind of permeates whether you're actually part of that group or that line or not. Mm-hmm. Negative stereotypes are held against us or held towards us. I also think, like you know, what's also associated with being Filipino Canadian or any other diasporic Filipino identity is the historical struggle of the Philippines claiming a discernible national identity on the world stage. And I think something that a lot of scholars talk about is is, is that the Philippines struggles to talk about their identity. And I think part of it is is because we have been conquered by many different visitors, (laughs) quote-unquote, or invaders. And Mm -hmm. people sometimes say that we're a melange of different cultures. I think it's true. Like, you know, we can look at Americans. They know exactly who they are. Canadians, in retrospect, know who they are, but in a very apologetic way. Australians know who they are. But when you think about Filipinos, they sometimes have a hard time 
explaining what yes. it means to be Filipino. Does that make sense? It totally does. It could be something simple as, hey, a lot of you guys have like Hispanic sounding names. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or I had a really good friend who is black and he just said, oh, we love the Filipinos. They love chicken and they go to church. Like, you know what I mean? Where they, you know, they find those commonalities and those who are even of Latin descent, they find the commonalities with us where they take those like, oh, we can identify with that with you. And we're still trying to define ourselves in all those parts of, in all those venues. Is that the right way to sort of say? Yeah. And, and so you think about that one example that you've just given there, you know, let's, it's like, we like our chicken and we like going to church, but how is that different from Mexican? Exactly. Right? Right. And so it's like, so what makes us specifically Filipino sometimes is hard to explain or claim and this is why I think sometimes what gets associated with our identities is just not being able to discernibly claim a national identity on the global world stage. Mm-hmm. I think the other associations that whether we want it or not that are attached to our identity is basically imperialism and favoring of Western society or Western ideals. And I think that that has to do yeah. a lot with Spanish colonialism, but American imperialism as well. And we've talked about this kind of like in terms of brand favoritism towards more Westernized brands, clothes, ideas, even foods for that matter. So I think that that just gets naturally attached to us in some way, shape or form. The other, in terms of what gets attached to our identities, is, is that, and it, and it becomes really clear when you start crossing customs around the world, cross any borders, you know, yes. any accomplishments that you and I might have suddenly get shed in some way, shape, or form. Like, I just remember back in 2002, my friend Nicole, who is this black Caribbean woman, she stands at six foot two. Door her, still keeping contact with Nicole. She used to actually be my supervisor while I worked at Blockbuster Video. Can you imagine me? <laughs> this is so old school. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I can imagine you. Yes. Yes, putting away on the shelf all of the different videos and new releases kind of coming through. We decided to do this cross border trip to the United States in my brand new RAV4. So saved up for it. Mm-hmm. Brand new. I didn't buy it secondhand. I didn't. Like I paid retail prices for this. I was really proud of this. And I still have my RAV4 to this day. I know. Ironically enough, it's still kicking, right? It's actually older than most of my nephews and nieces. So we get to the U.S. border, right? And there was just disbelief that I actually own the car that we were crossing in. And in fact, there was almost this kind of like, there was almost this assumption that either I was borrowing this from my parents, from my mom or my dad, or somehow I had gotten this through ill means in some ways. And I was like, could I not actually have had an accomplishment where I could actually buy this car? I guess not. So it was interesting that custom officers crossing the border thought that there's no way, there's no way you could have accomplished buying a brand new car like this. I don't know if you can relate to that. Oh, uh, this is... For those who know me on a personal level, when we're talking mm. about border crossings, there's... I have a tie-in, but I'm not going to really discuss it even further. But this is for your... I don't even think I told you the story before, Jesse. I had some co-workers and I, my friend Tracy and Paul, and Tracy's daughter, Emily. She was in a car seat. I sat in the back seat. We are going to go shopping right after work. I think this was around like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We were going to go right across the border just to go for spell. I had my passport. We were all set to go. Now, if you know me, I just finished work across the border. Hint, hint. So Mm. we go across the border. Tracy's driving. The border service officer on the U.S. side talked to Paul and Tracy. 
didn't talk to me at all, didn't mm-hmm. ask for my passport, and sent us in. And Tracy mm-hmm. goes, why are we being sent in? I go, she thinks I'm your, like, domestic worker. <laughs> oh, no, yes. Yeah, and oh I was gosh. like, do you remember that? I, I was like, are you kidding me? And Tracy and Paul were peeved. They're like, are oh you kidding gosh. me? They never asked him any questions. And then my friend Tracy, and we'll leave this slide, she goes, we just got off work, and we work right across the border. So if you can figure out what I'm saying, you know where I used to work. Right. Why would we? Didn't even ask us. And the girl that wow. came out, out of the booth saw us go in, and Tracy loudly said, it. I go, can you just, I go, don't make a big deal about it. Let's just go in. They're doing their job. She goes, right. but they didn't ask you one question. Wow. And we were sent in because I obviously wasn't white. Yes. It's clear I'll stand. And I'm just like, it's sort of the dark side and the yucky part of yeah, um, and it's something you and I have right? run like, into. Right? I it's find shocking. that crossing the borders really reveal the stereotypes that a host country or a country has about Filipinos in the diaspora. And mm-hmm. like this is a classic example, thinking that you are a domestic worker. No, there's no way that you could be anything but a domestic worker, which by the way, some scholars have said, and specifically one scholar who I've based some of our talking points today on mm-hmm. has said that if you think about domestic workers, the richest nations of the world have decided to entrust their futures in the hands of Filipinas. It's true. Like, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And yet mm-hmm. they're devalued in so many different ways. Oh my goodness, yeah. But I have to say now, Michael has the same reaction that your colleagues had, that your friends have, oh, where it's just yeah. kind of like incense. Like, and I've always said to Michael, you know, like they're going to ask me questions or they're going to grill me or they're going to say things. And then he sees it happen and he's like, you know, I cross the border and no one talks. To, you know, everyone yeah, wishes me a great this, day, right? You, and yes. I just say, honey, that's kind of what privilege is all about. Like, you have privilege. That's exactly it. For me, it's not that I have to prove my identity. I have to prove that I'm not trying to illegally get in somewhere. You know, I've got a really trusted passport around the world. And yet, despite having that trusted passport, it's like, how could you get it? And just you and I are probably preparing to make sure we have all the answers that are needed. And I'm That's talking about right. going to the United States. And my wife, Emily, is the same. Why are you so uptight? I go, I'm not uptight. Here's everything we need to know. Do we have the address of the hotel, the address of your sister when we visit Connecticut? Like, That's right. And Emily's like, or they're not even going to ask us. how much you have to us. declare, exactly. you know, I go, and stuff like that. I go, they're not even going to ask us. I go, if you're driving. Yeah. And right? it's true. And it's true. And, my, like, and, and the funny part is, is, is that... Michael, you know, is like, you should drive across the border. And I'm like, if I do that, which I'm fine, I'm going to be asked a million questions in one, you know? And so it's, you're right. They're all, everyone's doing their job, but it is interesting. Like the, the biases that get attached and the stereotypes that get attached. And this is why when I'm at the border, if I can find a creative way of having border agents ask me what I do for a living, because my profession is a trusted profession, then it lifts the negative veil upon me when I start crossing the border. So I carry my business card, like my professional business card, so that if I have to demonstrate it, they can see it. And they're like, oh. And then it quells it, right? It's no big deal. Because everyone just gets annoyed. I'd say, oh, I work for public service. She's like, why don't you just say where you work? I'm like, okay, calm down. And you know, and it ends up being fine when they, oh, you work for this place. And I'm like, yes. Yeah. Then it just totally changes it. But I'm just like, but even if I didn't, you know, the rigmarole. And there's always a trap. 
right? There's a trap. And the reason why I have to be creative in terms of trying to get a border agent to ask me what I do for a living is simply because then I look (laughs) self-interested. If I look self-interested, it's kind of like, oh, he's just trying to pass through customs, right? Or through the border. And if I say nothing, you know, then I get quizzed a million different ways and have to be prepared to say exactly how much, you know, while I was away or whatever the case may be. So, which is all fine, it's fine that we have to live this way, but it is interesting like when Emily or your, you know, your Caucasian friends or, or my Michael, in-laws. Like, yeah, exactly. No issues. Not a they problem. See it, they see it and they're just kind of like, wow, like you're not kidding. So I think sometimes being a Filipino in the diaspora, you get attached to all these unnecessary stereotypes. You know, your identity is somehow foisted upon you. And I think becoming Filipino-Canadian really means trying to shed these identities that have been foisted upon us. And Mm -hmm. then it becomes a search. Like in a lot of ways, it becomes a search for a sense of who we truly are without really any type of influence or distraction. And when I asked that question, and when you asked that question, how did you know or how did we become Filipino-Canadian? I really think of it as kind of a journey or a search or an exploration. And I think to Mm -hmm. myself that it really encompasses four stages, right? And this isn't based on anything. This is more just my observation is, is that you got to notice the difference first. And then once you've noticed the difference, like in other words, how do you know that you're different from everybody else? Mm-hmm. You then got to raise your consciousness mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, meaning you kind of have to understand these differences. And then it's about claiming those values that are consistent with my own personal values and then embracing it all. So let me just kind of give a bit of background, right? Like, I think growing up in Middle Scarborough, I kind of noticed that there were people that were in the majority and that I was different, but I didn't really think twice about it because I don't know that I was differentially treated. But what was fascinating was in grade eight that one year when we came back from the Philippines, you know, my teacher had asked me to actually collaborate with three other Filipino classmates to examine the history books that I was asked to bring back from the Philippines. And I have to say, Mm -hmm. this grade eight teacher was really smart. I don't, you know, I don't think I'd give him enough credit to actually, his name's Mr. Roach. And I don't think I've given him enough (laughs) credit to Mr. Roach because he actually said, you should get some history books and I've got a project for you when you come back. And the project involved us actually doing a presentation and an essay on key Filipino historical figures. And it was interesting because if I looked in any libraries, I don't think I would have found the books that I had found back in the Philippines. Yeah. What was also interesting was that three other Filipino Canadians had actually helped me on this. And then we did a presentation to the grade eight class. And then we did presentations to other classes where there were other Filipinos and talked about like key historical figures and then did a huge bulletin board outside of our grade eight classroom for the entire school to see. I knew it was something to be proud of, but I don't know that it felt made me feel any different. And the experience didn't dawn on me on how important it was until... I had reached the middle of high school, which I think is when I truly started to notice that, hey, I'm different, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm different from everyone around me. And I don't think I fully noticed that until my family moved from Middle Scarborough, Kennedy Park area to Rouge Hill, which, as Mm -hmm. I had mentioned earlier, is a primarily white neighborhood. Right. And it was the repositioning of our family and our family accruing wealth and then moving to this neighborhood that I realized that I I was more than just Canadian and that living in this community reminded me of being Filipino and all that entailed both the good, right? But also Mm -hmm. the not so good, what we've just been talking about and lamenting about just a number of minutes ago. 
And I have to say, things that throughout high school, it was hard to increase any consciousness or awareness as you and I have talked about this, like resources were really limited. It's like you oh, go to absolutely. the local library, public library system. It's hard to find it. Thank God today, if I was Filipino Canadian today and I was like 16 years old, I can find all this information oh, on the internet. But back then, yeah. really yeah. different. Yeah. yeah. And so it was hard to really raise my consciousness in a lot of ways. So when I got to university where I could start to read research on the history of the Philippines and scholarship on the Philippines, and more specifically scholarship on the diasporic identities. In other words, what it means to be Filipino outside of the Philippines and our racial identity development. That's Mm -hmm. when my brain started to kind of explode. And this consciousness raising, I have to say, was really difficult because it really challenged me to rethink instances in my life that I personalized events thinking somehow I created the problem when in actuality it was the system or society that was the problem that foisted upon me an identity that I didn't really deserve or an inferiority that I didn't really deserve. That's when I started to kind of get engaged in critical thinking about colonialism, racism, oppression, and all of that really helped me understand what my own identity was about. And that society and the world at large was putting this competing narrative on myself and probably on other Filipinos as well. And I have to say, I didn't start to disentangle this, you know, Mm -hmm. until a little bit later. And when I started to disentangle this, that's when I started to take pride in who I am and knew what it meant to be a Filipino in the diaspora and that I could take pride in that. But I I can tell you, it wasn't an easy journey and it's been a scenic route. (laughs) It's probably what I would say. I would say what has also helped terms of me becoming proudly Filipino-Canadian and taking pride in that and resisting the competing narratives that's been foisted upon us as a cultural group has really been about kind of seeking other Filipino-Canadians and talking to them. I would say that our heritage really demands that we overcome this conflictedness because when these other competing identities are placed upon us, Mm -hmm. you know, we feel torn and we're told what our identities are and that stops us from claiming who we are and It's become really important to just kind of, again, disentangle us from that. So I've just said a whole bunch of stuff, right, in terms of how I've become Filipino comedian. I'm wondering how you can relate to parts of what I've just shared with you. I relate to a lot. And even though we always introduce ourselves and we were born and raised and stuff like that, although Mm -hmm. we're Filipino, we have different immigration stories. And being Filipino, like I said earlier, is totally related to my parents' immigration story in Canada. Like, I remember holding my mom's citizenship card, being young, and I said, what is this? And my mom's like, Mm. and how come I don't have one? My mom's like, you know, I was born in Canada and, you know, I had the birth certificate that was laminated and my parents traveled from the Philippines and they got this citizenship card and she showed me my birth certificate and she knew that like I knew from the moment that I knew that we were Canadian and Filipino not even like a hyphenate we were both at home there were hallmarks of our culture growing up my parents were trying to preserve our culture from the Philippines and culture from Canada that my family was beginning to take in my mom from her work at the hospital my dad from work at GM me and my brother from school and our whole family from the neighborhood in the Niagara region you said something really interesting Kuya but some of the things that the roles that we took on and I felt growing up there was that model minority myth mm-hmm. that we were sort of pressured into, right? Like, right, right. And I felt that a hell of a lot more. And you're right. If we were in this time that we are now, we were dialed in and internet was ubiquitous and I could see other people in the diaspora. I can see what other Filipinos were like. We were relegated to like maybe a social group. And I always remember this. One of our first 
like conversations that Jesse and I had, and this is like I was in my twenties, twenty two, mm-hmm. where it really it's given me such food for thought. This is like pre Hollow Hollow podcast twenty years ago, <laughs> yes. and we're dating ourselves twenty twenty five years ago. Where I had a conversation with you, and I said, "Hey, Kuya, can I ask you something?" And you're like, "Yeah." He goes. It's funny, when I went to high school, three other Filipinos that I went with, we were very high achievers, some were in sports, and people were like, oh, you guys are going to be in med school. They thought we were just this bright bunch. And I noticed a different generation of the Filipinos coming in, and they were just different. Yes. yes. And I said that. And I it was so that. funny. You and I were in a parking lot, I think we were at the Pacific Mall or something, and you just <laughs> said, hey, do you know why? I'm like... No, I, I don't understand. Like, you know, the high caliber, we were very pushed. We were on student council. I was editor of the newspaper. Mm-hmm. We were very much these high flyers. And these kids don't seem to be. And I go, goes, Siggy, like, they're Filipino. I go, yeah, they're Filipino. He goes, but where are their parents? I go, well, actually, I think some of their parents were domestic workers. And then they, the kids joined up with their family afterwards, after right. they immigrated to the country. He goes, well, so that is your example. They are Filipino, but their experience is something so different. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. I'm like, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like I just said a few minutes ago, you know, me being Filipino is related to my parents' immigration story. My parents came at a time in the late 70s where Trudeau's like, let's make this vertical mosaic in Canada. Right. And they were able to come in and really get in there. We wanted Canada to be diverse. My parents had these opportunities. My mom went back to school. She became a nurse. My father worked at GM. And they were there part of my growing up life. In that rearing, my peers, Denise, Michael, Annalie, who were Filipino, and my high school, we sort of came from the same type of family structure, two kids, two parents, both working. But I benefited from that. But that story is only, you know, specific to us. When you opened my eyes, you were like, you know what? Yes, they're Filipino too, but their story is different. And you gave me like feedback and you're like, oh, this is why they may be acting this way. Or this is why their experience is much different than yours. And it just widened my eyes. I think after that discussion, I think when you and I interacted in our group of friends, I think it shifted. Like, I think we talked about much more serious things. Do you remember that? I recall that conversation very vividly, too. I just remember you had a heartfelt want to understand why things were different, right? Because I know that you (laughs) looked at me and you were like, well, look, you're ambitious academically and stuff like that. But why are these other Filipinos not this way? And because of their immigration story really determined their expression of what it meant to be Filipino-Canadian for a variety of different reasons, which is why maybe they weren't so academically ambitious or maybe didn't aim as high. But it's interesting because I think in that moment, you not only noticed, there was like almost a consciousness raising that occurred at that moment in time. And I remember afterwards, our conversations took a more deeper tone, kind of like you asking me bunches and bunches of more questions about what does it mean to be Filipino-Canadian outside of the GTA versus like Southwestern Ontario in a lot of ways. Oh, and like you provided like resources. You're like, did you hear about this? Or did you think about this? It was just eye opening. It was true. It was like the maturation of our friendship. Like it was pop culture still. But when I sat with you and I even think you became Kuya Jazz, you weren't just Jazzy. I think yes. it shifted. <laughs> yeah, it, it did. It, it, it probably was, did it was shift very, to Kuya Jazzy at that point. It was yeah. really interesting to me. Like, and you say journey and you've said one thing which I've learned from you about even like allyship, like this is ongoing. Our becoming Filipino is an ongoing. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Our cultural identity, what it means to be Filipino Canadian, it's ever evolving and changing. And I always remind myself that identity is dynamic and 
just because you feel pride right now, you know, that doesn't mean that it stops. It's less about the destination or the end goal, right? right. It's more about being, you know, on that path or on that journey as you had talked about before. Because I think at the end of the day, these like global imperialistic forces in this world continue to try to dismantle our ways of viewing ourselves in a very pride-driven fashion. And my search to claim my Filipino-Canadian identity is not about trying to get to the last station on the route, right? This is a constant, constant journey throughout our lives. And identity development doesn't end just because you feel good about yourself, right? It's true. There's always going to be different messages out there in very different ways, like just social media just kind of coming on board. How has that changed the way we think about our identities and think about our ability to kind of think about ourselves outside of the Philippines in the diaspora? All of this, in terms of what it means to become Filipino, Canadian really means being able to shed ourselves of all of these identities that have been foisted upon us and then calling it our own afterwards, figuring out what's our own. And I know that this is a constant, constant conversation and dialogue, which I think is why we've created the podcast, right? Is not just only for us, but I know that our friends have listened in on our conversations and have found it interesting. And we thought, maybe we need to share it with the world. And so we're glad that the world is kind of consuming (laughs) our quest to become even better Filipino-Canadians. That kind of takes us to the fixing of the week sigs where I want to quote a scholar from the Philippines. Her name is mm-hmm. Amin Aguila, who actually studied in Canada and got her PhD at the University of Alberta. Oh, wow. And she proposes Kapwa, which is a Filipino value. And for those that might not know what that means, it means seeking closeness to others or another way of thinking about it is solidarity or more specifically, it's seeing others and ourselves as one. And I believe that that Filipino value can help one negotiate one's identity in the diaspora. So, Siggy, when you and I are one talking about these issues, right, I find that I get better in thinking about what it means to be Filipino-Canadian. And so that really is the fixing of the week, is find other Filipino-Canadians and commune with them so that your own identity and your own feelings of pride enliven get fostered, and gets enriched. And Siggy, I know you and I use this podcast as a vehicle for us to commune and enriching our own identities as well. And so, listeners, we hope you can find your your way in terms of commuting with others. And it's not just with other Filipino-Canadians. It could be through this podcast or other Filipino-Canadian podcasts or Filipinos in the diaspora. Through research, which is kind of where I had done a lot of mines, through different groups, whether they be church groups, student groups, or even through sports leagues, you know, in a lot of ways. So find other Filipino Canadians, commune with them with the hope of sharpening or enlivening or increasing your pride in your identity as being Filipino Canadian. Especially during this month of June for Filipino Canadian Heritage Month. There are many resources going out there and this is the best way to start our month off and we encourage you, as exactly like Jesse says, go out and commune with them. There are many more resources. It's only been how many years since Filipino Canadian Heritage Month has been recognized? There are many more to come. Take us out, Sigs. We love email. We want to hear what you think. Email us at holoholopopculture at gmail.com. The Holo Holo Podcast is available on all platforms. Rate us, leave a review, and listen to us this month in June. You can find us on social media, Twitter, our handles at holoholopop, and on Instagram at holoholopopculture. This month, Holo Holo Podcast will repost some of our Filipino-Canadian heritage content. So keep an eye on that. Finally, we receive editorial feedback from Mary Beth Badian. 
Our musical theme is by Chal Turingen, and we'll see all of you guys again real soon. See you soon.